On this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy, you will hear from Professor Joe Dasta as we discuss how leaders can encourage their clinical staffs to be leaders within a specialty area of pharmacy practice. Hi everyone and welcome to Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Weber, Chief Pharmacy Officer and Administrator of Pharmacy Services at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Powered by the Ohio State University Lachalet Leadership Program, this show is designed to keep current and aspiring health system pharmacy leaders up to date with issues, trends, and best practices affecting our profession. You can learn more about the Lashley Leadership Program and the Ohio State University's College of Pharmacy MS and Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership by visiting go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. That's go.osu.edu forward slash pharmacy leadership. Joseph Daster received his Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy in 1974 from West Virginia University and a Master of Science in Residency in Hospital Pharmacy from The Ohio State University in 1976. He began his academic career at OSU and developed one of the first practice sites and postdoctoral residency and fellowship programs in critical care pharmacy. He is by many considered the genesis of critical care pharmacy practice across the country and the world. He serves as a faculty member. He served as a faculty member with tenure at Ohio State for over 30 years. His past and current roles include Professor Emeritus, the Ohio State University, and adjunct professor, University of Texas School of Pharmacy. Joe is currently a healthcare consultant in the area of acute care pharmaceuticals, including economic evaluations of acute pain management, and he also serves on the editorial board of the Annals of Pharmacotherapy. Professor Dasta has over 300 peer-reviewed publications, abstracts, communications, book chapters, and emphasizes the areas of medication safety, acute pain management, sepsis, acute hypertension, hyponatremia, kidney injury, and pharmacoeconomics. He's also quite prolific on the lecture circuit as he's provided over 250 lectures on various topics related mainly to critical care and health outcomes. He's received Numerous awards, such as the Clifton J. Lashley Award, which is Ohio State's highest honor in the graduate program, the Russell Miller Award, and the Jerry Siegel Clinical Achievement Award. Okay, let's jump into our interview with Professor Dasta. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Always a pleasure to be on program with you. It's always great to hear your voice and get a chance to talk to you. I always enjoy our conversations. Of course, we've known each other for <clears throat> a very long time, and... Uh, I read a little bit about you in your introduction to the audience, but is there anything you'd like to add based on what I've read? Well, you can't do this alone. And um, I have a very supportive wife uh, who has uh, always got my back so that I could sort of pers pursue my dreams. And uh, that's an important variable. Uh, you know, it's uh, it just doesn't come without consequences. So you try to make a balance, and I've tried over the years. Yes, yes, and you have, and you have a you have a wonderful wife and family, and uh, yes, uh, she had to put up with you, I'm assuming, and supported you, uh, but really, she is really uh, 
really, you know, obviously great and really given the credit in many ways for your success. And, and, and um, uh, I feel the same way as well about my family. Um, so let's talk about your career. You, you started uh, after your residency. First of all, you were one of Cliff's residents, right? Right. In 1974. Can you talk about any specific memory of Cliff that you had for the audience? Because as, uh, the, as, as folks who train with Cliff, uh, as we retire and as we go and do other things, sort of the oral histories are starting to disappear. And part of this program, Joe, is to, is to really record an oral history about Cliff Lachalet. So is there, are there any memories of him that, that stick out that you'd like to share with the audience? I can say I've never met anyone quite like Cliff in my life. And yes. when I was assigned, you know, whatever, the maybe it was a June rotation with him, uh, about starting, you know, three months beforehand is when I'm trying to prepare, uh, and you and you because you never know what uh, what's going to happen. So uh, Cliff uh, was able to see through issues and come up with suggestions. Um, he uh, he would give me, as he did all the residents during their rotation, some assignments. And it's like you have the whole profession of pharmacy on your shoulders when Cliff asks you to do something, because you knew he, you know, he wanted to just excellence. If if you can't do it a hundred thousand percent, don't do it. And when right. you do it, make sure it's done in an excellent, complete manner. So one of the first things he did, uh, but I had, I guess, a little inbox or a physical inbox. Yes. And it was a, yeah, uh, was. yeah a. Uh, a letter of request from someone to have Cliff write a letter of support. And um, it had maybe a one paragraph on this person who I've never heard of before. So I'm thinking, how am I going to write a letter of support of someone that I've never heard of, don't know about, and I've got one paragraph. So the only thing I could think of was seeing whether he's published anything or she in the journal. So the AJHP journal in particular, because that's hospital pharmacy too. So I went to the library because there were no electronic searching engines. And, yes, uh, exactly. you know, the author index and tried to find, you know, find them uh, and, and write something somewhat semi-intelligent. Uh, the other thing, Cliff was a talented writer. And I would see, you know, he didn't use typewriters, mm-hmm. his handwritten things. And I read them and I go, my, this is beautiful. And, it, you know, it wasn't the, the eighth draft like it would be for most of us. Correct. It was yeah. his first draft. Yeah. And the one phrase that I remember me writing, I remember writing something I sang over the last several months. And I got it back from Cliff with a read through it. All those words to one word recently. <laughs> I go, oh, <laughs> oh, that's a great. Story. Say that you yeah, know, just a... don't, don't, don't waste your time on, on things. So those are the kinds of things. But you know, as a big picture, he, 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 and many of the others, the the directors, assistant and associate directors, really showed me to not shy away from problems and don't whine about them. But when you see one, see if you can fix it. And I got some examples we could talk about later about that. Great. That's a great story. That's a really great story uh, for two reasons. First of all, I, I tell the residents, Joe, this all the time. I say there's going to be times in your career 
where you're going to be given a project with no information. It's going to be, here's this project. Go ahead and execute on this project. And oh, by the way, there's a paragraph of information. And that's tough for our current residents to deal with, Joe. I will be absolutely honest. They, they don't deal with it as well as I would have as I would like sometimes. And I think folks listening to this podcast who hear that story will be, uh, I think, very, 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 um, uh, I think they'll be very touched by that because that, in essence, that is, that is what Cliff Lashley was all about. And, that, and, and that's what we try to teach our residents. So then you, your career moved from uh, being um, obviously a resident to a faculty member. You were in the pulmonary division initially. Right. So kind of describe to us your clinical practice trajectory. Like how did you advance your career as far as a clinical practitioner? Some of that relates to just being lucky and being in the right place at the right time. During my residency, uh, it became clear that I was not earmarked to be an administrator. I would not be good at it. because I just didn't have those those kinds of skills. So I <clears throat> asked if I could do more clinical projects, and they were very accommodating. <clears throat> so one day, Ed Nold, who was the associate director at the time, sees me in the office and he says, Joe, you got a minute? Of course, I freak out and thinking, what did, you know, what did I break? Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, you like, you understand you're more interested in clinical. I go, well, yeah they were developing a therapeutics course for the first time to the pharmacy students. It was written by the, the pharmacists at the, at the hospital before it was called a medical center, and they didn't have anybody to give the respiratory lectures. So I said yes, and I walked out of the door saying, Mike, what have I gotten myself into? I know next to nothing other than wheezing. So I, I, you know, I read more than I've ever read in my life about this disease state gave the lectures, and then when they hired me, they hired me as a unusual, as a 50% appointment at the Drug Information Center under Dr. Visconti, God bless his heart, mm-hmm. and the other 50% at the college to further develop this therapeutics course. So I remember talking to Dr. Visconti saying, you know, if I'm going to give these pulmonary lectures, I should probably figure out how these patients present and are actually treated in the hospital setting. Plus, Frankly, I knew in a year or so I was going to be getting three far, three BS pharmacy students on rotation, so I need to find a place. There was yeah, I had no, you know, uh, Zen kind of feeling that I'm going to create yeah. some new thing here. You know, this new wave of critical care. I was had a job to do and kind of filled it with uh, with starting a practice there, and I and I did. So that's how I got involved with pulmonary, and. After two or three years, uh, they, they were telling me that, uh, and I enjoyed the time with pulmonary medicine, that uh, they were going to be, the pulmonary attendings were going to be the medical ICU attendings. And I said, wow, could I go on rounds with you guys there? They go, sure. And that's how I got involved with the medical ICU. Mm, and it was completely overwhelming. I mean, I had obviously no training in critical care, pharmacy, or physiology, mm-hmm. yet these patients had, um, you know, multiple drug therapy, multiple disease states, and they were just looked so sick. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at, at that time, Bob, you can remember well because you did some wonderful exp- uh, experiential rotations with me, and I, I learned a lot from you. Let me tell you that. And uh, we saw these patients; they looked like they were dead. Oh yeah. Right, except for the monitors that shows they have a heartbeat <laughs> and a heart rate. <laughs> What the heck was that going on? So my evolution into critical care was not designed ahead of time. It just happened. So I'll give you two examples of problems that I saw that needed to be fixed. The first was with pulmonary patients receiving theophylline. That's a time when we were using theophylline IV. And I saw a couple of patients seize on on, receiving theophylline, IV aminophylline. And I go, this could be amino. And I'll never forget this. One of the residents, medical residents, he goes, yeah, that happens. And I said to myself, what do you mean that? That happens? You mean you're predestined? <laughs> so I tried to come up with dosing guidelines. But one of the problems was the levels weren't coming back until after the patient was discharged. So I took it upon myself to find out who was doing these levels and how could we speed up the process. I eventually found Dr. Dan Corey, toxicology department, second floor of Starling Loving. Remember, the first first floor was the morgue. <laughs> Walked by those doors a lot, hoping never to never to visit. But uh, so I talked to them. I says, if I got you these levels by 10 a.m., could you get the results by mid afternoon? He goes, well, we will give it our best try. So I remember getting as many patients' blood samples. In a, toe, in a tube, in my white coat pocket with a IBM card kind of rubber band around it. Yeah, yeah. So there was no bag of biohazard or, you know, <laughs> this tubes of blood. So I got that solved by seeing how that, and then eventually we worked out where transportation would run them over to the, to the lab and get the results done. Um, the other example was, uh, when I heard that while I was with the medical ICU uh, physicians, I heard that there was a surgical, I knew it existed, the surgical ICU, but I didn't understand how poor pharmacy services were to them in a strike contrast to the rest of the hospital. Essentially, the pharmacy department would send unreconstituted files of antibiotics of of everything. And the nurse would be reconstituting them, or if an ampule, they'd be opening it up at, at the bedside, putting it in a syringe, putting it in the buretrol, right? And no no sterile technique, no, no nothing. And the interaction between the nurse and a pharmacist was pretty much limited to a telephone call saying, my genomycin level's late. Can you get it to me? So I, I talked with uh, Tim to more, but bless his heart too, about I would like to get involved with clinical aspect. I knew I couldn't do start up a unit dose and IV admixture services, but let's start with a clinical practice. So I went every day on rounds with the anesthesia and or surgeon that was the attending. So I tried to, you know, to get that going. And uh, an interesting anecdote, knowing that told me that I found my home in the SICU. Yes was when a patient, this is my first day on rounds, Dr. Riley was the anesthesiologist, and he said, basically, show up at nine. Okay. So I get, I mean, I literally 
know next to, truly next to nothing about surgical procedures and critical illness. And um, he told the, the residents and fellows, he goes, he says, I will, I'll take care of the ventilator. Dasta will take care of the drugs. And I, you know, like I, I must have blanched, you know, white. What the <laughs> heck? What did I get myself into? So there was a patient receiving regular dose cimetidine, which we used to use for stress ulcer prophylaxis, who had a creatinine of three or four, and he was shaving, but he didn't have a shaver or a razor, and he didn't have any, he was hallucinating. And they looked at me, and and, and I, I said, well, he's this high dose of uh, relatively speaking cimetidine. So I was starting to kind of get together in my mind a little brief description of cimetidine psychosis and passing the blood-brain barrier. Dr. Riley says, stop, write the order. How do we fix this? Oh, Jesus. So I wrote the first time I'd ever written an order uh, that was co-signed to stop the drug for 24 hours, restart it at every 12 hours and not every six hours. And two days later, patient was cognitively much better. So I'm, I mean, it was in the unit that day for something. And, and uh, this physician who I'd never seen before, his name was uh, Bill Smead, a vascular surgeon. He says, are you Joe Dasta? I go, yeah, I'm thinking, oh, brother. He says, thank you for helping me take care of my patient. We did a great job with that. Well, he says, what we learn in, in training is the OR and techniques. We don't learn about post post-operative pharmacology. And he said, thank you. And I sat in a chair and like, I think I almost cried a little, you know, <laughs> never had a surgeon, not a physician, a surgeon tell me, thank you. So that, yeah. that told me I was, I was where I needed to be. That's great. And I, I do remember Dr. Riley quite well. In fact, when I came back to Ohio state, he was just close to retiring. Oh, and I believe yeah. he is retired yes. now, but uh, his famous line was, uh, uh, how to evaluate chest x-rays in the surgical ICU. And it's gross changes in both lung fields and tube and line placement. Tube and line placement. <laughs> and I, every and time. I, and I never, ever forgot that. I was in, when I went to Pittsburgh, and the folks here know that I worked in critical care. I was Joe's fellow, worked in critical care. And uh, I would say that to the students. I would say, so, okay, what is what do you do with this chest x-ray? And they wouldn't say anything. I would say, you look at three things, gross changes in the lung fields and tube and line placement. So, um, so yeah, I know. So, so then you found your home. So really, Joe, when you solved those problems, you really demonstrated leadership. And, and that's, I think the key to this podcast is that solving real life problems locally with your patients, uh, taking the initiative to do that. That's what truly what leadership is. And that's what directors of pharmacy and pharmacy leaders would like to see their pharmacy specialists do. And so, so translating that now from sort of the local to how did you get involved with SCCM? How did that, how did that all come out? Well, part of that was the, the, the luck business. Mm -hmm. uh, since I needed, there were no training programs in pharmacy, critical care or fellowship, residencies or fellowship. So I went to the library to see what is in there and under the letter C for critical, there's some textbooks and I saw this journal, Critical Care Medicine. Uh, it was like volume seven. So it had been in existence mm -hmm. for seven years. Mm -hmm. And I um, looked through the journal, didn't understand a lot of what I was reading. And there was a page about joining. And uh, it 
listed, you know, put your name and info, and there were categories, physician, nurse, other. That's all it said was other. So I remember going back to my office, um, calling. It was an 800 number. Um, and I, I, I said, I don't see pharmacist on your criteria here. Could a pharmacist join? And she says, well, tell me what you do. And I said, well, I go on rounds every day with the, with the doctors and, and try to optimize uh, drug therapy. She goes, oh, you're part of the team. Of course you can join. Welcome aboard. <laughs> so that's wow. how, how I heard about it, how I joined. And then um, I went to their first meeting. I don't know why I remember it was in St. Louis, but it was in St. Louis. And seeing some of these people that I was reading about in the journal, in the textbooks, Will Shoemaker and Max Harry Weil was just, you know, awestruck by what they knew and what they were saying. Um some of them would talk a little bit about the ICU team. And they would say, now we, we're at my hospital, we have this team, we have a pulmonary doctor, a surgeon, and a nurse, and some kind, sometimes a respiratory therapist. And then that was it. They never mentioned anyone else, including pharmacy. I think you say, you know, it's not their fault. They just have not had any involvement with pharmacists, or they'd, they would say that. So I started ask. I told uh, others about this organization. They should they should join and and start attending. Back to the business about residency training. I said, well, if we don't have one. Let's start one. And we did one of one of if not the first residency post. Probably we didn't have PGY and two, but no. But it was uh, it was probably the first one I would think, wouldn't you? With uh, Judy, Doctor Judy Jacob. You know, yeah, she was certainly my first resident in 81. That may have been, that may be someone in Kentucky, but I'm not sure that it was fully, fully focused. And then, uh, so as these residents went through the program, we were able to recruit usually two or three at a time. Um, you need, as part of your program, you need to go to this meeting. And then when the fellowship started, and Bob was my first fellow, we got that funded we saw a problem. We wanted to do it, but there wasn't a budget for it. So we wrote the pr proposal to ASHP. And I think it was IVAC or IMED. Yeah, it was I, and In fact, I'm looking at the uh, my certificate. It was IVAC oh, Corporation. Wow. And uh, interestingly, that was Warren McConnell, if you recall. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's since passed away, but that was Warren McConnell, uh, who that, that was really his brainchild to expand the critical care. I don't know if you recall that or not, but I didn't know that. That's, that yeah. was something. So that's how I got involved and how people started attending. And then with Judy uh, Jacoby uh, attending, and she had really a vision of where we should go. And we would talk about how do we get more involved with the society? It's a national organization, U.S. based and uh, now international. And we said, well, there are sections within the society for pulmonary surgery, nursing section. We need to see if we could form a pharmacy section. So we call it clinical pharmacy and pharmacology. And uh, uh, Judy and a couple of others uh, talked to leadership within the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And they said, basically write a letter describing how many you think there are, uh, these pharmacists, how many might want to attend and go to the meeting, 
participate and just write us a letter of what it is. So she did. I think she may have been asked to present it at one of the council meetings. And when the meeting ended, they approved it. That, in 1990, we got approved first time through for a clinical pharmacy and pharmacology section. And I often refer to that as like the advancement that caused a thousand other advances because that got us involved not only in attending the meeting, but being on being asked to join, participate in various uh, media, uh, committee meetings. Right. And these right. physicians that had never worked with pharmacists got to see what we were about. Right. We, we, we do more than just make IV drugs. And although there's nothing wrong with that, you got to do both. You have to have both of them done. And then as time evolved, more and more of us attended. So this resulted, I believe, directly as a result of the section formation. Yeah. Things like being not only on committees, but chairing SCCM committees. Certainly, our section had a bunch of committees as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then not only being members, but also chairing the committees, being a member, and then chairing guidelines, clinical practice guidelines that are emanating from the society. Uh, and I can think of, I think, four. Now there's four pharmacists that have chaired an official SCCM clinical practice guideline. Wow. So at the time, that would have been, un, you know, like un, unheard of at the, at the time. So, it's almost like uh, it's almost kind of akin to pharmacists in the Institute of Medicine. There's several pharmacists in the Institute of Medicine. That's the other thing that's, it's, I mean, again, kind of on that level, right? Oh, in absolutely. Skill and reputation. Yeah, the good example there relative to critical care would be a pharmacist member of the NIH. There's a couple members of the NIH panel on COVID 19. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, farm, well, Amy Zerba is the PharmD that I know well, and she's, she said one day she just got this email from Dr. Fauci. <laughs> Can you imagine that? He says, we'd like you to join this uh, group. I asked so, Dr. Fauci to do a podcast, but he respectfully declined, of course. Um, so, you know, again, you've talked a lot about, Joe, a lot about just leadership, leadership tasks and leadership initiative that you took as a as a clinical pharmacist, and I think a lot of pharmacy leaders, younger pharmacists that get these MS degrees with residencies, I, I you know I think they see themselves as the as the leaders in the profession. But in reality, I mean anybody can be a leader, right? I mean anybody can, and and you've proven that you've proven that you can be a leader in really anything related to whatever you do in your career, and. As a clinical pharmacist, you can be a leader on the local level. You can be a leader nationally, like uh, you know you have been. And I, I think again, it's a great lesson for for all of our pharmacy leaders listening to this podcast. That you've got pharmacy specialists there who at your institution who are skilled at what they do and have good relationships with physicians and can. Uh, have good leadership skills, take advantage of it because it, it'll not only improve the quality of your service, but improve their professional satisfaction. So, I mean, I think you've just given us a bunch of examples just through these stories, Joe, in terms of where it just, just you know, and so I never true. really thought of it as being a leader, leader kind of activity. You're right. It really is. And the two important things, in my uh, opinion, is to listen to all involved with the, with the issue right. 
and right. and really not just say yeah, but really listen, get them involved as as active ways, and that recruit the best people you can. They'll they, you know that to solve the problem. Exactly, exactly, and you know uh, again, let's say you want to solve a problem in clinical care on your unit, you recruit the nursing staff, you recruit physicians, you know, a variety of uh, of things as well. So. Um, you know, it's just really, really gratifying, Joe, to see how you've made such a difference. And really, uh, we would hope that your Ohio State training, your influence from Dr. Lashley would would truly be, you know, the, the impetus for how you've performed your career. And it sounds like he, he was a great influence on you. And you've obviously taken it well beyond, I think, what, uh, you know, what Cliff would have done. I think he would have been very proud of you. And I think he was always very proud of you from, you know, the comments he made to me. Um, in your spare time, what do you like to do, Joe, in your spare time? Well, interestingly, I've always um, played the guitar, like in high school and a little bit during college, mm -hmm. but then, you know, life gets in the way. Oh, yeah. And sure. uh, sort of pick it up and put it down, mostly put it down. So, you know, as very around January, February of this year, I said, you know, got some downtime. And it's been an, an outlet for me to uh, to you know bring out the guitar and uh, get some various music uh, that I had collected over the years, even though the paper is on the yellow side, there's enough you know, the chords and the notes, and that's been really it's a challenge, if you will, to kind of I mean I was so out of shape and now my fingers have calluses on them. Yeah, they've got the callus on them, and that's uh, that's been a way to kind of get me away from. But you know I I. When you say in your spare time, given the fact I don't have a day job any longer, yeah, essentially right. it's all my spare time. But I really do enjoy this kind of discussions that we're having here. I enjoy yeah. collaborating with my former trainees, and we've mm -hmm. done that in many different ways. Sure. Uh, and, you know, like when I mention guidelines, I've been on four uh, three, three since re quote retiring from from the university, and wow. they they are very intense experiences. And trust me, you can look at a guideline and throw darts at it, mm -hmm. but if you've ever been a member, a participant, you know those oh, darts. It, it just there's not there's all the science, but then there's all the politics that go through go into it. So, and I I really felt that I can make a difference or at least an input uh, into these guidelines that I've been involved with. And then, as you mentioned, one of the things that I continue to do is to be a consultant to various pharmaceutical companies in the area of acute care pharmaceuticals, particularly pain management. And I've, I've learned a lot and I think I've added to, uh, to the literature because a lot of these projects do result in a peer-reviewed publication. Yeah. And that is very... Uh, meaningful to me that you know until i stop enjoying it i'll hopefully continue great well joe it's been really really great talking to you and uh, i know that the profession is very proud of you obviously you can you're considered by many to be the grandfather of critical care and so uh i want to thank you for your service to the profession and thank you so much for being on the podcast today and thanks so much bob for inviting me and go bucks go bucks
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Leadership Lessons in Health System Pharmacy. And if you found this interview helpful to your own professional development, please do us a favor and share the good news with your colleagues and leave us with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts each and every week.